Welcome back to the Kansas City Symphony Global Podcast Network's Darling of Drive Time, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Jason Sieber, the Kansas City Symphony's Associate Conductor. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute. Guys, I think it's pretty clear at this point that the three of us make a pretty powerful podcast team. I mean, clearly, Stephanie, you have the perfect upbeat energy all the time. You're just on cloud nine. <laughs> and I've been told I have a pleasing, sonorous voice for radio. Uh-huh. And Mike, you just have the look of a really compelling podcaster, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that. Is that a nice way of telling him he has a face for radio? Is that what you just said? I think I did. I think that was a, a subtle way of saying that. Yes. I, yeah. I I appreciate that. I've always thought my face looked good on radio. <laughs> well, um, you know, today we're going to have the chance to get to know a real expert in radio and broadcasting who recently launched Classical KC and brought a true round-the-clock classical radio station back to Kansas City. I mean, I have uh, such early memories of classical radio uh, growing up where I did in Rhode Island and the Boston area. And I mean, I can remember even like back in the you know late 80s, early 90s, my dad would take me to school in his little, his little blue Chevy Sprint, which was basically a lawnmower <laughs> with doors. <laughs> and he'd turn on the radio and every morning, you know, you'd hear... It's 7.35, and we've just heard a wonderful recording from Emmanuel Axe and Neville Mariner with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. And I just thought, you know, it's this sort of very uh, stereotypical, snoozy, classical radio, but I have a very vivid memory of it as a kid. And of course, on weekends, actually, they would have wonderful... uh, Kids programs Mm -hmm. where I remember hearing like orchestral cartoon music, you know, and that got me really excited about playing. So anyway, I'm uh, super excited now to have a classical station here in Kansas City, but I think it's a little different than maybe what I was used to hearing in my dad's Chevy Sprint from 1987. <laughs> you know what's funny? I have the, I mean, I have very similar memories growing up, except it depended on who was driving the car. If my mom was driving the Chevy Astro van, then we listened to the, you know, the local NPR classical station. That's what we did. But if my dad was driving the, you know, Army Green Volvo, <laughs> then we were listening to like music from the 50s, like only music of the 50s. So I know a whole lot of that music. And then I know a whole lot of classical music from growing up. But that's that was certainly it depended on which car I was in for sure. But I think that's what's so great about classical KC is that you know, the station here, they feature a lot of local artists and a lot of arts organizations locally, including, of course, the Kansas City Symphony. These broadcasts include wonderful commentary and interviews with our music director, Michael Stern, and have also featured many musicians from the orchestra, as well as um, many guest artists. So I am super excited to introduce our guest today. He is the director of 91.9 Classical KC and the chief of broadcast operations for KCUR and Classical KC. Please welcome Stephen Steigman. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me on. Really, really delighted to be with you. And I'm really honored that you've um, picked me uh, for this episode of the podcast. And it remains to be seen whether or not that was a good choice you made. Well, already (laughs) I'm regretting it a little bit just because you have an actual radio voice and then there's us. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you're all good. And, you know, I think one of the, I think just like, you know, lower priced video cameras really democratized video making. I think lower priced audio equipment and the ability to do things at home has really democratized audio, um, the audio sphere and podcasts. I think that's a good thing. I really do yeah. think that's a good thing. And by the way, I have to, I, 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 I cried a little bit when you told me that, uh, Stephanie, that depending on which car you were in is what service you listen to, either a classical, a public uh-huh. radio classical station or a public radio NPR station and the, the, the green Volvo. And just the other day, I don't know if you can see this, um, my yes. wife found this old set of keys from my 1983 green Volvo station wagon. So I feel oh. like we are kindred spirits here. We are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a funny story about my Volvo because I got um, that that car got passed down to me when I went to high school. Uh huh. Yep. And my parents wanted me to drive it because it was a Volvo 740 something, mm-hmm. and it was just a tank. And I got rear-ended by someone in the parking lot. It had nothing, not even a scratch on it, but it completely destroyed the other person's front end. Like. That's right. The, the Volvos, they're boxy, but they're good. <laughs> One of those Volvos probably would have flattened my dad's car like a tin can. <laughs> this episode, <laughs> not sponsored by Volvo. Not sponsored Volvo. by Volvo, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, Stephen, so uh, you and I met, I think, maybe a little more than a year and a half ago, maybe about a year and a half ago. Sounds uh, about right. Yeah, when um, bef- just slightly pre-pandemic, uh, when Classical KC was still very much in its planning phase. And um, I have to say, I hadn't previously given a whole lot of thought to the fact that we didn't have a classical station here in Kansas City, and you instantly got me very excited about it. Uh, and you obviously got a whole lot of others excited about it, too, because you actually made this thing happen. So, you know, what made you roll out of bed one morning and say to yourself, you know what I'm going to do today? I am going to start a classical <laughs> radio station in Kansas City. That's that's what I'm going to do. You know, it had been a quest uh, a long time in the making. In fact, for a number of years, probably last 15 years or so. KCUR has looked at the idea of starting a classical station. The timing was never right, though. When a signal became available, it was way too expensive. And finally, about three years ago, uh, our general manager at the time, Nico Leone, and a lot of credit goes to him uh, for this station being uh, here now. Uh, Nico came into my office and he said, you know, I want to talk with you about something. And I said, yeah, that's really funny, Nico, because I wanted to talk with you about something as well. And he said, I was thinking about a classical station. I said, you're kidding me, because that's exactly what I was thinking about as well. And we realized that it had been nearly 20 years since KXTR, which was the old commercial classical station in Kansas City, was purchased by Entercom, you know, a large radio conglomerate. And Entercom decided, um, as a commercial enterprise, that 96.5 FM, which is what KXTR was, was much more valuable as a frequency if they flipped it to AAA or some other format. And so they did that and they moved classical to AM. And if you can ever imagine, I mean, you can listen to music on AM right now. It doesn't sound that great. If you can imagine classical music on AM, not good at all. So back in 2000, there was this outcry in the community for classical music on FM again. And that's when KCUR started carrying classical music from 9 p.m. to midnight. And that's about the same time that I had an informational interview with the program director at KCUR. Uh, I was working at the Conservatory of Music at UMKC at the time, managing their concert halls and their concert series. I was their operations director. And so the program director at KCUR called me and he said, hey, we needed like a part-time announcer 
who knows how to pronounce classical composers' names. <laughs> uh, are you interested in working for us? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so I became a part-time announcer with like no radio experience whatsoever. So this whole idea of a classical station um, is, is not a new one. But the idea of what a modern classical station should be is a new idea. Because uh, as you, you know, so aptly put in your introduction, these were the old classical stations where you'd hear this piece and that piece and as performed by the Chicago Symphony under the... I mean, that is the old <laughs> style of classical music. We knew that starting a classical music station in 2020 wouldn't be a success unless we made connections between that music and people's everyday lives and we championed local musicians and ensembles. That's the whole reason that Classical KC exists. It's to say, hey everybody, check out the amazing amount of talent we have in Kansas City. You may know about some of it. You know about the Kansas City Symphony. You know about the Lyric Opera. You've probably even been to a concert for the Harem and Jewel series or the Friends of Chamber Music. But did you know that we have 25 other organizations in Kansas City that perform classical music? And that's really where we got started. You know, I, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I feel like that's something that we talk about on this podcast a lot is, I mean, we're three, you know, Kansas City transplants, um, but that's something we talk about a lot is how Kansas City and certainly the arts organizations really support each other. And I think that's what makes being here so unique. I mean, it's very unique for a lot of reasons, but this is just one other example is that everybody is helping everybody and everybody wants to draw attention to what we have here. It's, you know, we're not, it's not to say that we're scared to highlight or don't want to highlight artists, you know, from all over the world, but it's like, look also at what, what we have here in Kansas City. And I think that's a truly special thing that does not happen everywhere. I agree with you. In fact, count me as your fourth transplant. I moved here from Philadelphia. And after I moved here, I said, you know, I'll give this place like three years and then I am out of here. <laughs> that was 26 years ago. And um, you know, I was planning on going to a larger city. I was planning on working for the Chicago Symphony or for the Philadelphia Orchestra or the New York Phil. And that didn't happen. I stayed in Kansas City. And one of the reasons I stayed in Kansas City was because our classical music scene was growing by leaps and bounds. Back then in 1995, Scott Cantrell, uh, who was then the music critic for the Kansas City Star, told me that he could cover every single concert in Kansas City because there was never more than one a night. And mm. when you think about where we are now, we've, yeah. got t we've got a lot going on. Well, in non-pandemic times, we have a lot going on every single night. But that doesn't mean, I mean, a little bit of friendly competition is great, but we are really supportive of all of our musicians in whatever ensembles or solo uh, performances they do, large and small. So so I think it's really interesting, actually, and I didn't know this, that your entree into broadcasting didn't really happen until you came to, to KCUR and you were at UMKC before then. So so tell us a little bit about you know what, what led to your involvement in classical music and maybe, maybe you know, where you thought uh, that was going to go as a career path mm -hmm. uh, that that eventually led you, I suppose it's fair to say, maybe somewhat unexpectedly into broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, all credit really goes to my parents and my grandparents. My grandmother, um, my late grandmother was a classical pianist. Um, and uh, at her time, there weren't a lot of women 
uh, professional pianist, and she was a great piano teacher and taught me my first music lessons. And I picked up trombone in fourth grade, like a lot of kids do, and I really grabbed onto it. And I, um, you know, was a pretty good trombonist in my day. I all state festivals and I got a scholarship to go to college playing trombone. And I thought that I was going to be a trombonist. Well, hmm. and then I realized, gosh, I'll have to practice four, five, six hours a day. And how many gigs are there out there for me? And I know it's incredibly competitive. In the sophomore year of college, I was at Skidmore College. I saw a flyer posted to a, a wall. Remember those things, posters? Uh, mm -hmm. And it was uh, and advertising. Boards. I remember that. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was advertising uh, the American Symphony Orchestra League's uh, orchestra fellowship program. And I thought, ooh, that sounds interesting. What if I kind of design a, a major at Skidmore College? They called it a self-determined major um, of like half music, half business with a whole bunch of internships tossed in. And so I did uh, with the single goal of getting that fellowship from the league. Uh, well, I did, and I had some great internships. I worked for the National Symphony at the Kennedy Center, and I worked for the Jerusalem Symphony on a semester abroad, and I worked for the Albany Symphony Orchestra, um, working on a whole bunch of different things there. And uh, I applied for the fellowship, got to be a finalist, and didn't quite make it there. That was an alternate. Mm. I thought, gosh, mm. eh, what a letdown. But that's okay. Uh, about a half a year later, I was approached by a friend of the family who said, who happened to be the dean of the conservatory at UMKC at the time. And he said, you know, I'm hiring this new position. Uh, it's this manager of concert activities at the conservatory. You should apply if you're interested. Uh, and I, I did. I, I, I can't say I knew anything about Kansas City. In fact, if you'd given me a, a map of the U.S., a blank map of the U.S., and asked me to identify Kansas City, I would have been off by 400 miles. I mean, I, I really had no idea where this place was. But it probably would have been 400 miles to the west, still in the state of Kansas, as right. everyone else thinks Kansas City is in, probably. <laughs> exactly right. Can I just say, I, we just have to, I want to say, Stephen, you and I are like, the same person. I mean, we have almost <laughs> the same name. When I when I got when I came to interview for this job in Kansas City, I was on the plane coming to the interview, and I opened the plane map, and I was like, "All right, where exactly am I going?" Right. No idea. <laughs> I knew nothing. I th I figured it was like Chicago. I figured it was flat, and I got him like, "Whoa, there are hills here, and this is a pretty nice place." And oh. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing, but that's it. I'm out of here in three years. I'm going to a bigger city, right? <laughs> no, but I stuck around and we had 350 concerts at the conservatory every year. And that kept me really, really busy. So when they asked me to be a part-time announcer on top of my existing job, I said, why not? And of course I was a public radio devotee. I had, I was your typical public radio kid, backseat listener. Um, I would listen when my parents played it in the car. And I remember when I was getting ready uh, in the morning at home, my father would wear a Walkman. Remember those Walkman? You know, oh, yeah. Remember oh, Walkman? Yeah. The one that like attached to his arm. And he would put his headphones on and I would try to ask him a question. And he would say, shh, 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 I'm listening to the newscast. <laughs> 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 Guess what I do now to my kids? <laughs> uh, I, I was always a public radio kid. But the whole idea of working in public radio never crossed my mind. And so to, you know, to kind of bring it full circle, to start off being hired in public radio because of the demise of KXTR, and now in 2021 running a classical station in Kansas City, 
I mean, talk about a turn of events. It's 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 awfully cool. So, Stephen, you mentioned earlier some of the ways that classical KC connects with the community by featuring local artists and local organizations and really um, supporting them and show, showcasing how great they are. But you, as as the head of a classical radio station, face similar decisions, I think, as the heads, both the artistic and administrative heads of an orchestra do when it comes to programming and trying to develop a new audience and a younger audience, especially. Right. What are some ways that you have found to be helpful in especially guiding your hosts? Because I know that with classical radio, it can easily become, okay, this is all music from the classical and Baroque period, or this person's playing all contemporary stuff and I don't recognize a single piece. How mm -hmm. do you guide your hosts and the general shape of your programming so that it's very eclectic, very diverse, and that you're keeping both sets of listeners, both those people that are there to hear the Mozart and the Beethoven and the people that are there to hear the latest piece by Valerie Coleman. How do you keep all those people engaged and and keep people coming back and develop new audiences? Well, actually, in many of the same ways that the Kansas City Symphony does it. And, you know, Michael Stern's dedication to sticking a new piece of music on each concert, you know, sandwiched in between two classic pieces, right? If, you know, we have said for a long time that we are, we're not... I like to paraphrase that this isn't your father's Oldsmobile. This isn't your father's classical music station. And we uh, find that, yes, there's always going to be that, you know, the top 200 of classical. In fact, it reminds me of a, of, of a positioning statement that WFMT in Chicago used to have. Our top 40 never changes. Hmm. And yeah, your top 40 isn't going to change if you don't introduce people to new music or lesser known works. And we are so committed to featuring not only new works by contemporary composers, but works by people who have been historically underrepresented in classical music, people of color, um, women. I mean, people who were prolific composers, but never had their works performed or, more importantly for radio, recorded. How are we yeah. supposed to overcome that? Um, you know, we right now in our first year are acquiring a lot of our programming from other sources, from other stations like WFMT or from American Public Media and Minnesota Classical. And I think they do a fantastic job of not only kind of mixing up the playlist and making sure that they play enough kind of familiar hits for lack of a better term, that makes the listener recognize, oh, I know that piece, or that's really mm -hmm. cool. But also, kind of those moments of surprise where, like, I don't think I've ever heard that piece. And they're also mixing in a good number of pieces that really weren't heard that much uh, by composers like Florence Price or Margaret Bonds. Um, and I'm really proud of what they've done, and I'm even more excited about what we're planning on doing which is uh, our dedication to ensuring that our playlists aren't just, as one of my former bosses put it, compositions by dead white European men, but by living composers and composers from lots of diverse backgrounds. And I want to say one more thing about reaching younger audiences. When we launched the station, you know, KCUR is 100,000 watts. That's a really powerful station. You can get it more or less in a 90-mile radius of Kansas City. Classical KC's um, signal is m not nearly as strong as 7,000 watts. And it reaches the Kansas City metro, but not much beyond. Mm -hmm. And we knew that going into the purchase of this station from William Jewell College, which is who had been like the perfect partner in all of this, 
we knew that in 2020, we would be reaching audiences not only on FM radios, but on computers and on smart speakers and on Facebook and Instagram in any way we could get to them. And that's really of utmost importance to us, to reach audiences where they are. If they want to listen to us on the radio in their car, super. If they want to listen to one of our programs on demand at two in the morning on our website or interact with us through Facebook, that's great too. The important part is that we you get our content no matter how you get our content. And that's really what we think is the key to younger audiences and more diverse audiences, providing them with great content that is not only available to them whenever or wherever they want it, but content that engages them as well. Whenever one of my announcers turns on a microphone, I want them to connect that piece of music that you just heard or that you're going to hear with you. Whether it's a 300-year-old piece of music or a three-week-old piece of music, I want that piece of music to connect with your life in 2021. You know, this is really, really interesting to me for a variety of reasons, and we've we've talked about this before. I mean, one of the things that... You know, I said at the top of the show, I hadn't thought about the fact that we didn't have a classical station here in Kansas City. It's because, you know, I do the same thing that most people of my generation do when I want to listen to something. I go on to Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or whatever, and I just search for the thing that I'm looking for, or the, you know, general um, uh, genre of what I'm looking for. And I let the internet, you know, feed me content. And, and it's not necessarily from here in Kansas City, I'm not necessarily choosing real specifically what I'm listening to, but, you know, all of that is out there. And, you know, all you have to do is, you know, say, hey, Google, or hey, Alexa, or hey, Siri, I'm deliberately setting off everyone's devices now. Just about to say, there it goes. Yeah, there, there it goes. Yeah. I'm now. sorry. I don't know what you said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now Jeff Bezos is listening to us. So, you know, in in that whole world, um, you know, what are you finding you have to do differently to make radio relevant, aside from the fact that, you know, of course, you're you're providing listeners in Kansas City with artists from Kansas City uh, right. to a large extent, you know, but how are you how are you reaching people in this, you know, sea of the internet to say, hey, we're here, you can listen to us this way too. You know, I gave a presentation recently uh, on Zoom, um, of course, to a, a local Rotary Club. And I have a slide in my slide deck that says, has a question in it, like, why start a classical radio station in 2020 when you've got Spotify or Pandora or Sirius XM or all these other digital, you know, sources? And I think you pointed out, Michael, which is you can, sure, you can ask Spotify to play Beethoven for you. Um, but so I asked the audience this question, like, you know, what makes us different? And the answer I wanted to hear from them, by the way, was because it's local, because we feature the Kansas City Symphony. We feature, uh, the Kansas City Chorale, these ensembles you might hear on the national level, but you're more likely to hear through us, right? Champion our local musicians. Well, the answer, the first answer I got from a listener was, well, because you talk between the pieces. Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh my gosh. Of course. I mean, to me, that's second nature. I'm in public radio. We always talk, right? We're always introducing pieces and trying to make those connections. But you don't get that on Spotify or Pandora. And Spotify and Pandora have these great algorithms that play music that it knows Mike Gordon wants to hear. But it doesn't really, it's not a place of discovery. And that's Ooh. one of the things I think public radio does best. We, at our core, are curators of great content. And whether that's news stories on the KCUR side, 
or that's music on the classical KC side, we are introducing new things to the audience. And I like to say that you can turn on classical KC any time of the week, and you're going to hear something new. And you may hear something you don't really like that doesn't really, you know, engage you. But just wait a few minutes and you're going to hear something that you do like. Mm. And you're not going to get that through an algorithm. Speaking of what you like and what you don't like, this, this is a little bit off topic. But when you were talking about, um, you know, Michael Stern's commitment to, you know, always programming something by, you know, a new composer, something more contemporary, something by a woman, something, you know, uh, underrepresented composers. I'm curious, just in your kind of research and your programming history, your opinion you know, there's this there's this idea that people don't like new music, or mm. people who are pe- people are less less open to new music. Uh, it, I want to hear you know the standards. I want to hear Beethoven and Brahms and Tchaikovsky, and that's who I want to hear. And and I don't know that it's true that that you know that our audiences are not as open to new music as kind of we want to say that they are. But if it's true. Do you think that's because that's the rhetoric and that's what everybody says? I don't like new music or do we really not like the new music? Does, it's a self-fulfilling. It, it, what I'm making it's, sense. It, yeah. <laughs> that make, you make, makes perfect sense. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. If we only program music that we're comfortable with and that we're used to hearing and we like hearing, we're never going to hear new music. But if we start airing, if we start performing more new music more often, Eventually, those are going to become hits on the right. radio, right? right? And those are going to be pieces that those are going to become the kind of the new canon. And I think contemporary music gets a bad rap. Um, I think contemporary music of um, our childhood, <laughs> even older, let's say mid twentieth century, a lot mm-hmm. of atonal, inaccessible music. But I have heard some great contemporary music, including by local Kansas City composers. Yeah. And, um, you know, we are actually right now working on a weekly contemporary music program by two great local hosts. And is it going to be a hit on day one? Uh, I hope so. Um, (laughs) But there are going to be, it's going to be a self-selecting audience for a while because they're going to say, oh, contemporary music, but give it a chance because I think you'll like what you hear. Uh, and there are some great contemporary ensembles in Kansas City as well. You know, and I mean, I'm that that's amazing, and I think that would be a huge help. I don't know if I've said this on this podcast before, but you know, I mean, the work that I do primarily is with with kids and pro- programming music for kids. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we're when we talk about contemporary music is we immediately apologize for it. Right. There's this. Oh, sorry, you know, that's Schoenberg, right? Yeah. yeah, I know. Okay, I know. I know. You're. I know that. What? How you feel about this? But just give it a chance. And it's like when we play music for kids, regardless of what we play. I mean, they have no. They have no background for it. You know, it's most of the time when we're performing for them, it's their first experience with. Mm-hmm symphonic music at all so you know when you play something for them well they don't know what they're supposed to like or not supposed to like and they end up liking some really interesting things and i so i think that yeah the the apologizing is a a place that we all kind of struggle with and i think if that went away we would have a lot more success with just the accessibility of it right you are not going to please your audience 100 percent of the time right you have to please them enough so they'll keep coming back. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the same goes for the symphony as it goes for us. 
And um, we will get, I mean, nobody, is, there, there are no listeners more passionate about what they hear on the radio than classical music listeners. And we will get calls if we mispronounce something. We will <laughs> hear from people if they don't like that piece of music. We use, you know, play less of that, play less symphony stuff. And can you play more chamber works? Um, and we hear that uh, occasionally. Um, but I think over the course of time, you're going to hear something you like. And I, I, I love what you say about young kids and, and their reaction to contemporary music because so much of the music they're hearing in film or TV or video games is classical music. And we, I, I don't like to define the boundaries of classical music. I like to be as wide as possible. And we have that luxury of, of not really saying classical music has to be from this era to this era. Um, I like to be as open as possible with what we play on Classical Casey. Well, to bring this all full circle, you know, you mentioned that b having a, an algorithm is one thing, but being able to talk about the pieces in between is key too. And I think a big thing with contemporary music and programming in an, with an orchestra is if you just put a contemporary piece on a program because you like the piece, but it doesn't really relate to the other pieces on the program necessarily, or you don't introduce it or set it up in any way, it's most likely never going to succeed as much as, as it would on the opposite end if you are able to have the composer say a few words about it before the piece starts or listen for this, or it has a direct connection to the symphony that you're going to be playing by Beethoven on the second half of the program. And I think that's one thing that you know Michael does very well here and, and various other guest conductors as well. Um, if you're able to build a relationship, and I'm sure it's the same thing on the radio, okay, I'm going to play this brand new piece by Michael Abels, but right after it, I'm going to play a similar piece that Stravinsky wrote that has some of the same syncopations or, you know, you're able to make those connections with music from the past and, and show people this isn't that much different than the music that you love then certainly you're setting yourself up for more success. And you can't get that on something like Spotify or iTunes, like you mentioned. That's right. And that's what I think one of the things that makes the Kansas City Symphony such a great orchestra is those explanations, the behind the scenes, the, 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 the connections between the music and, 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 and other one piece of music and the next piece of music. I mean, our old style of presenting concerts um, is probably the same as our old style of presenting music. And now here's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And then you will applaud and we will walk off the stage and you will go out and get a drink in the lobby and you will come back in the hall and you will hear a concerto. And then anyway, it's, yeah. it, it, we, our audiences demand interaction now. They want the stories behind the pieces. They want to know their musicians. They want to know the creative process that goes into these things because it makes them appreciate the music even more. And they can go home and, and just like people say, did you hear on NPR? People are now going to say, did you hear when Jason said at that pre-concert talk or when Michael on the stage said, made that connection? Did you hear that? Mm -hmm. They're, they're sharing something beyond the music itself. Right. So, um, I want to change gears just a little bit for a minute because you're also the director of broadcasting for KCUR. And, um, because you're, or at least one of your passions is classical music, and I am a classical musician. Um, most of our conversations have kind of been related to the music side of things, but I'm really interested to know more about your work with KCUR and you know how those 
how your your role at each of those stations, KCUR and Classical KC, are, are different, or maybe they're the same? Hmm. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of risen through the ranks of KCUR. I started as a part-time announcer, and then I became a full-time announcer. I became a full-time announcer in September of 2001, right before September 11th. That was a really interesting time to join the station as a full-time announcer. And then I started a talk show up to date with Steve Kraske in 2002. That was kind of my baby. I always, that's kind of my big claim to fame is that show. Hmm. Um, and then I, I took over our broadcast operations in 2014 when our, uh, when the station's engineer retired. Now I am not a, a radio engineer, uh, by training. Uh, I dabble in it every single day, but I've gotten to know a lot about radio equipment and automation and transmitters and things that ordinary people would probably find pretty boring. But it is the vital equipment that keeps uh, that that takes the sound in this microphone and sends it out to your radio. Um, so that really helped me along in starting a classical station. Instead of having to hire a programmer and then to hire an engineering team, they could just hire me instead, and I could do both for them. Uh, so it's, you know, both stations at their core are providing a public service, right? Um, you know, KCUR and classical KCR are, are, are different in their staff size. I mean, KCUR has a, a, a staff of about 60 or 65 people. Um, classical KC has a very small staff right now, but this is our year of building. We're about to hire our very first full-time announcer who will also be our digital uh, specialist. And then down the line, we'll hire another announcer who will be our engagement and education person. And then down the line, we'll hire a person who will be an announcer and a music director. So, you know, one of the beauties or curses of radio these days is automation. Um, a computer can run a station. And that doesn't mean, though, that there aren't people making the decisions on what to program in that computer. Uh, we will always have people making those decisions. We don't use algorithms to choose the music. We, uh, we, we say, where will this fit well here? And does this belong next to this piece? And what types of programs and ensembles should we feature this week? So I, I use my programming background uh, from KCUR for Classical KC in a different way uh, from using my engineering hat duties uh, from KCUR for classical KC as well. No, I find it interesting because, well, again, you know, as we've talked about, you know, you really do come more out of the classical music world, but you've taken on this knowledge about engineering, about, you know, running a radio station. And of course, you know, KCUR is, well, they play music and until more recently, uh, you know, that was kind of the classical music source, but you know, they're primarily news, right? Right. Um, so to my lay mind that seems like uh you know a very different beast to manage but i also you know as you were saying that coming back to music was you know thinking in terms of programming you know when when we program concerts for instance we program you know for a, a subscription series concert you know three or four pieces for each week you have to program three or four pieces an hour yeah you know for <laughs> Yeah. All, you know, for all day long. And I realize, you know, at the moment, you know, some of that programming is, is coming, you know, from some other sources, but, but either way, you know, that seems like a monumental task all on its own. And of course, news sort of generates its own programming in a way, because, you know, the news is the news and there's new right. news every day, but to choose music 
you know, 24 hours a day indefinitely seems like a really tall task. It, it is It is a tall task. And I should kind of rephrase what I said earlier. Um, I mean, we there is software out there that exists. There's one called Music Master. It looks at your library, at your 40,000 titles, and you give it parameters saying, hey, I want this hour to have this number of really well-known pieces and this number of lesser-known pieces, or I want to focus on Baroque this hour, and next hour I want Romantic. Um, and it will help you program that hour. And that's a huge help to a lot of stations, especially stations with smaller staff. But in the end, it's still the music director. It's still the the person making the decision to say, yes, this is how I want this program to work. And to say, no, I don't like that selection. Let's sub- substitute something else in. And actually, this leads me to a really another really interesting question. Where does your library come from? I mean, when I, you know, when I need to get music, I in the good old days, I went to a music store. Now I can download it. But where does a radio station get its music from? Like, you don't just patch mm-hmm. Spotify through to your station. Well, that is one of the challenges of starting a radio station in 2020, as opposed to having one from 1960 that has a, a collection of 100,000 albums and or, you know records and CDs sitting in a big, big library like WFMT does. We don't have one yet, but we're building one. And But if we do build one, are we going to have 40,000 CDs sitting around? No, we will probably acquire most of that music in digital formats. And it lives on a hard drive. And of course, you know, music rights require us to have kind of a physical copy of of that recording, but it'll never be put in a CD machine more than once to rip that data off that disc and put it into our system. Um, We have a really great resource on our university's campus, the Miller Nichols Library, has a fantastic music library. Um, we are in the works to acquire a large CD collection right now, but we will probably rely on an electronic library, essentially a big hard drive full of music. And that's really very different than it was just 10 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I've been having conversations with some of my colleagues in the public radio classical sphere about what do we do about new recordings? Um, there is a project underway at All Classical in Portland. Um, it's a composition um, recording project. They are awarding, they're, they're commissioning works by um, underrepresented composers, people of color and women, and they are giving them recording contracts, and they are hiring an ensemble, and they are recording them. And they're going to share them with all the other classical stations. And they're going to share this model with other classical stations. So we too, maybe a year down the line, will be able to commission five works by underrepresented composers. And we'll add to that library. And so right now we're looking at ways that we can start sharing all this content without having to, you know, print a CD of every single one and send two, you know, 80 CDs out there to classical stations across the country. Um, there are a lot of new innovations in um, content delivery that allow us to share that uh, those recordings uh, much more easily. I have a question for you, Stephen. Has COVID, has the pandemic changed the way that radio stations operate uh, or has any aspect of the broadcasting or the programming changed as a result? I mean, you guys kind Absolutely. of got your birth around the same time as the pandemic starting. Right. So you you kind of 
have gone through it simultaneously, but you are someone that has been in this industry for a long time. What what are some changes? Because I know there's been some really positive changes in the orchestral world, and I'm curious what the changes have been in the radio world. No, there have been some great changes for us as well. Um, a lot of our employees at KCUR and at Classical KC have been working from home for the past year. Uh, a lot of our colleagues across the country have been as well. Um, with the, um, you know, with high speed internet available in most people's homes, a lot of announcers are able to voice track uh, from home and mm. upload their voice tracks or go live from uh, remotely from another location. Um, but, you know, the other challenge, of course, has been the lack of performances. I mean, one of my favorite yeah. uh, shows on Classical KC is Performance Today, hosted by Fred Child. And that is really a showcase of live performances from all over the world. And all of a sudden, their library's getting a little, you know, thin because yeah. they don't have any, they didn't have many live performances from March of last year onwards. Uh, so they've been airing a lot of uh, previously aired material, encores, reruns, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, and, but I, I love that show um, for many, many reasons, but occasionally uh, at the, you know, at the end of a piece, you hear an audience clapping. I, I sometimes shed a tear mm. because it reminds me what it's like to be in a concert hall in a live performance. And that's something you just can't replace with a Zoom call. Um, you know, our broadcasts of the Kansas City Symphony on Classical KC over the last year have been through the uh, power of Zoom. Uh, Michael joins us from wherever he is, and uh, we have our host in studio, uh, and we're able to welcome in a soloist uh, or an orchestra musician remotely as well. Um, and so I think if anything, it's really given us greater access to people and will always give us greater access to people, but there's nothing like being in studio with a person and being able to kind of read their emotions and, and read their face while you're asking them a question. Well, Stephen, clearly, you know, the rules of our podcast in that when we, when we get to the end, we uh, like to ask two very important questions. And because of your your background and your kind of studiousness when it comes to composers, I we ah, I, I feel like we expect you're giving a me really way too much credit. Answer no. <laughs> so the, the yeah, first question, uh, Stephanie. Stephanie, remember, I'm a trombonist. I'm uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that changes everything. Come on, right. lower the lower the bar a little bit, okay? Okay. Well, I'll ask you the easy question first. Okay. So, if you were you know finishing up a, a long day of broadcasting and programming and 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 all of that, and you wanted to grab a drink. What would that drink be? Alcoholic, non-alcoholic, caffeinated, non-caffeinated. And the second part of that question is if you were to enjoy that drink with a group of friends and Beethoven happened to be sitting next to you, what what would you like to ask Beethoven? A after my jaw dropped? Um, <laughs> gosh. Well, the first, uh, the first part of your question is fairly easy. In the morning, my drink of choice is coffee, and rarely can I get enough of it. It really... <laughs> Uh, does wonders for me. Um, at the end of the day, and what time is the end of the day? Like one o'clock, two o'clock? Just kidding. At the end, at the end of the day, to you. <laughs> at the end of the day, I love nothing more than a really good gin and tonic, mm. usually made with one of my favorite local gins, either from Rieger or from Tomstown, uh, mixed with Fever Tree tonic uh, and uh, a good uh, helping of lime. Uh, that's that's my drink of choice. Um, I do like that, the fever tree tonic. That's good stuff. I like this. Good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sorry to interrupt, Stephen, but that's interesting because I actually have it reverse. I start my day with a gin and tonic and then I have coffee around <laughs> one or two in the afternoon. And you just never go to bed. To wake up afterwards, yeah. Interesting. Typical musician, right? Same two drinks, but just reversed. Interesting. <laughs> right. All right, what would you ask Beethoven if oh you were my uh, enjoying a gin and tonic with him? I don't know. I mean, it's going to sound you know, pretty... Uh, uh, first of all, I, I thank him for finally introducing trombones into symphonies. I knew it would uh, have something to do with trombone. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, and, and I would ask him why why not anymore? Because uh, just like every other trombonist, I hate sitting around for two movements or three movements and then <laughs> getting our moment in the sun, right? Um, but I think I'd I'd ask Beethoven to look forward two hundred and fifty years and say, did did you think you were going to be that? popular i mean you're you're popular now in your in your life but did you really think you were going to be that popular and have that sustaining ability you know a quarter of a millennium after your death i mean that's that to me let me let me let me, let me rephrase this I, I don't know every composer every musician is excited in the moment knowing that their audiences appreciate what they do but i don't know how many of them think about the long tail of their work. Mm -hmm. And could you possibly look forward 200, 250 years and imagine that your work was still just as popular? Can you imagine that you would have at least one of your pieces played probably once every 24 hours or more on classical KC, I would guess. <laughs> but there's rarely a day that goes by without a piece by Beethoven. Radio? What's radio? Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that's a fascinating question, though, because I really, I, I have never thought about that, even, you know, just even from my own perspective, certainly. But I mean, like, I mean, Mike, you're a fabulous flute player. Can you imagine people talking about Michael Gordon, the flute playing, podcasting, triple lutzing genius in 250 years? Oh, they will be. They will be. I'm impressed if they remember my name before the end of the podcast. <laughs> I haven't forgotten it yet, you know? Oh, man. But, but I mean, we, th we think about music. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to bring this up. You know, music being created, you know, chamber music being created for people's homes, for their courts, right? Or, you know, symphonies being created for a live experience, never to be heard again, unless, of course, you go to another live experience. This whole concept of recording music or broadcasting music can what will it be like 200 years from now only time will tell only time will tell well Stephen, once again it has been an absolute blast to have you on the show today we have learned so much not only about classical kc but i feel like i've learned a lot about radio in general and thank you so much for being a guest but one more thing before we let you go Okay. Uh, another thing that we like to do at the end of the show sometimes is recommended listening. Mm. And who better to ask for some recommended listening than someone that listens to music and thinks about programming music all the time? So do you have any perhaps recent pieces that you've come across <sighs> that you love mm. or composers or uh, a favorite recording or two that you've always loved that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? You know, my stock answer is just like, go turn on the radio to 91.9 FM or stream classical KC yeah. because you'll always find something new. It's kind of a place of discovery. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite programs that I listen to on classical KC, it's a, uh, a show called Extra Eclectic, hosted by Steve Seal of Minnesota Classical. And he always plays something I have never heard before. And it's, uh, I would say it's always something of the contemporary variety, 
but it's perfect for a late evening. But if I were to choose composers, I would say, you know, local Kansas City composers. We have such incredible talent, uh, and we don't get to hear them enough. Um, and we're really looking forward to featuring people like Ingrid Stolzl or, or Chen Yi or Tad Kingsmith. A lot of these local composers who, you know, either learn their craft at the Conservatory of Music at UMKC um, or have their per works uh, performed by, you know, ensembles like New Year Chamber Ensemble. Um, I love hearing new music um, because it's it's the future. It's the future of, of classical music. Excellent. Well, you should definitely tune into that program on Wednesday nights at 10. But you should be listening to Classical Casey all the time. As all the Stephen time. said, you can always hear something new and exciting and some familiar stuff as well. Um, just a reminder of when some of our programs are on, you can hear Casey Symphony on Classical Casey Thursday nights at 8 p.m. and then again Sunday afternoons at 4 and our previous executive director, Frank Byrne, also has a wonderful show called From the Archives that's on Saturday mornings at 11 and also Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. So make sure you check out those shows especially. They're really wonderful. Stephen, once again, thank you so much. Uh, we, we really appreciate you giving up a lot of your time today to be with us and our listeners. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. It was a delight to do the podcast, and I'd be delighted to do it with you again. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. Stephen. Well, next week, guys, we're going to be commemorating the special occasion of Memorial Day by honoring our troops and veterans. More specifically, we're going to sit down with one of my fellow undergrad classmates from my Baldwin-Wallace days, oboist Joe DeLuccio, who for the past 16 years has been a member of the President's Own Marine Band. We're going to get to hear what it's like to perform in one of the most prestigious ensembles in the country, a band that plays gigs like presidential inaugurations and major events at the White House. They record with an array of incredible artists in our field and serve as musical ambassadors for the United States. We simply can't wait to talk to Joe all about his career and his service to our country next week on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>